This episode brought to you by the Velvet Hammer Podcast. This is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network. I'm Sonia Russo. This is the first episode of this podcast. With this show, we aim to cover issues that are relevant to young lawyers across the country. We hope to provide practical information that is actually useful in both your practice and in your life outside of the office. We will do this with a narrative format featuring the voices of young lawyers. We will also occasionally have longer interviews with different experts. This episode, we're talking about civility in the legal profession. Future episodes will cover racism in the legal profession and the practice of law one year into COVID, among other topics. I'm excited you're joining us at the beginning of this journey. Let's get started. We've all received insulting emails from opposing counsel, or even been insulted in a filed motion. Yes, that actually happened to me by a lawyer who was eventually disbarred. Lack of civility, whether it comes from a partner, opposing counsel, or clients, affects the mental health and well-being of any lawyer who has to deal with it. Sure, there are folks out there that claim that this kind of thing doesn't affect them, and they actually look forward to it. I have my doubts about whether that's true. None of us should accept that lack of civility is just an inherent part of practicing law. During this episode, you'll hear from young lawyers in Chicago, New Orleans, and Tampa. They'll tell us about their own experiences with lack of civility and how they stay calm and carry on with class and dignity. You'll also hear my interview with Brooklyn Law School professor Heidi Brown. Professor Brown practiced in construction litigation for several years before becoming a law professor, so she understands what it's like to face lack of civility. Professor Brown has some tips for us on how to maintain our mental health and sanity while practicing law in an uncivil world. We're living in especially challenging times right now. There's a global pandemic of a lethal virus, and politically, we're incredibly polarized and divided. Melissa Lasselle, who practices in New Orleans in the area of legal malpractice, has been a lawyer for 11 years. She's noticed that civility has decreased dramatically in the last few years. People are not being kind anymore, it seems like, or just recognizing the validity of like other differing opinions. So everything seems to be a little bit more contentious and sharper. Melissa thinks the decrease in civility in the legal profession is related to the 2016 election. I think it's been happening for a while, but I think it probably does coincide with, you know, the 2016 elections. You know, the legal market and lawsuits, America is is a very litigious country, something that I guess I can't complain too much about because it helps me pay my mortgage. But at the same time, it has just become everyone is fighting about everything. And that, again, it, when that happens in the country, it's really something that spills over into what we see as lawyers. Melissa has also noticed that the COVID-19 pandemic has made lawyers less civil. I would say there's also been kind of a sharp decrease in civility since the pandemic has started. I think a lot of people have been feeling not a lot of control 
in their personal lives. So I've noticed both in terms of the lawyers that I'm defending, but then also my interactions with the lawyers in the cases that I'm litigating, everyone is less patient and less understanding. I mean, with of course, with the exception of like, I have COVID, I need like a two-week extension. Everyone is very willing to give that kind of thing. But even if your discovery responses are late, people are much more willing to file a motion to compel rather than like picking up the phone and doing a courtesy like check-in. Lack of civility in the legal profession isn't limited to just mere rudeness. Lack of civility also includes racism and sexism. Melanie Sinosian practices business and construction litigation in Tampa, Florida, and has been a lawyer for five years. For Melanie, sexism and racism are emblematic of how uncivil the legal profession has become. Melanie reflected that bias based in civility is so damaging because it affects her self-worth and even her ability to be productive. It really demoralizes you. If somebody is telling you, you can't do this. I had um, a supervisor talk to me about how I shouldn't argue a case in front of a judge because the judge won't take me seriously for whatever reason. The judge just wouldn't take me seriously as a young female Latina attorney. And that completely changed the way that I worked with the colleague and the way that I thought of myself. I take myself seriously. I thought my colleagues took me seriously. I don't understand why a judge would not take me seriously. And I found that very offensive. And I think having to face that, if you have to face that on a day-to-day basis, it's very easy to have that affect your work. Melanie confronts lack of civility by taking the high road, citing Michelle Obama as her role model. Responding with civility is, I'm going to go ahead and say always, the best way to respond because it's one way for other people to understand how possibly their behavior is uncivil and also to understand where you're coming from. And I think that people don't react very well when you are uncivil. It kind of blinds them. I know that it blinds me when I hear the uncivility and other people. So I think that it's important to make sure that you're responding with civility. And as Michelle Obama recently reminded us, when they go low, you go high. (laughs) And I like to (laughs) try to (laughs) reflect that in the profession. I think that it's a great reminder of how we should react when somebody is displaying uncivil behavior towards us. It's difficult enough experiencing incivility from a peer, a judge, or even a supervisor. But what happens when it's your client that isn't being civil? Eric Sternberg has practiced for eight years at a low-income tax clinic in Chicago. With clients, he also takes the high road. When a client comes to me and they're angry or they're taking out their frustrations on me, I really believe it is not, it's not them, it is the situation that's causing them to act that way. And I'm sure if I encountered them in a different context or at a different time, they would be just a pleasure to deal with. So I try not, as best I can, not to take things personally. If they are really, if I really feel like they are raiding me or bullying me, which I don't even know if that has happened personally, but I know it happens to colleagues. I might just sort of calmly let them know that this conversation is not really productive anymore, but I truly want to help. So please let's reschedule for another time when, when we are all more level-headed. Eric practices radical empathy, putting himself in the shoes of anyone who's uncivil to him whether it's a client or, on a rare occasion, someone with the IRS. 
I know everyone can be overworked or stressed out at any given time. So I, I always do my best to assume that that is the exception rather than their actual personality. Eric also thinks the adversarial nature of practicing law lends itself to a lack of civility. He believes this is especially relevant now when many of us are working from home in our personal spaces, often on camera. For Eric, basic empathy is something all of us should have in our toolkits as we're dealing with this new normal. I think just understand that we are all, yeah, we're all people, we're all doing our best. Law is very logical and it's very like, it can be a, I don't want to say a game, but it can be like, who's going to win? I'm going to use these rules to beat you. And, and that, I mean, that is our job as lawyers to, to know the rules, to know the law, to zealously advocate for our clients. But I think it's just remembering that at the end of the day, we are all people who are trying to help, especially now that many of us are working remotely. So we're sort of inviting the person into our home if we have the camera on or if we're on the phone. So there's a little bit of trust and maybe sometimes feelings of intrusiveness that can happen if you're not being civil when you're in someone else's home in this kind of remote environment. So far, we've talked about taking the high road and understanding the impact of stress and too much work. But what about ways to get in front of incivility before it happens? Melissa believes that emotional intelligence training can help us too. Any time that you don't know something about yourself or you don't know that you're lacking something, learning that about yourself makes you a better person. You know, a lot of people have been doing implicit bias training lately, which is wonderful. Without doing implicit bias training, you may not realize that you've got, you know, these unconscious biases that affect your practice. The same thing kind of with testing your emotional intelligence. If you don't do that kind of testing and understanding what kind of communicator you are, perhaps maybe you don't realize that you're deficient until you do it. For most of us, email is both an efficient way to communicate and the bane of our existence. The next time you're tempted to fire off an email, responding in kind to a rude opposing counsel or client, remember this piece of advice from Melissa. One of the things that I think about and tell my clients to think about is whatever you're sending, whatever you're doing, how would you feel if that was presented to the judge or jury? And so you have to think of the end game. Anytime you send an email, it's now so easy for opposing counsel to attach that as an exhibit. And so you really have to think about the consequences of your action. Melissa also advises lawyers to read their state's code of professionalism because professional responsibility rules are not just abstract requirements. They provide practical guidelines that all of us should be using to model our own behavior. One of the things in the Louisiana Code of Professionalism is that you're not going to deny, you know, your opposing counsel a request for extension of time or a continuance if they need it. And you shouldn't have to prove, you know, like you shouldn't have to prove that you've got COVID or your child is sick. You should just trust your other lawyers and they're not going to abuse the system. And again, super cheesy. I really do feel like you have to model the, the examples of civility that you want to see in other people. And so by policing yourself and your own behavior, you can hope that that's going to be returned to other people. As we've discussed, civility is a challenging issue that affects every practicing attorney. A toxic work environment whether it's caused by opposing counsel, a coworker, or even a client, can be nearly debilitating for even the most seasoned practitioner. But what about first-year associates and those early in their career who haven't yet developed a thick skin from experience? For them, 
not knowing how to handle incivility could be a career-ending event, or at the very least could cause a premature transition to a different workplace. I talked with Professor Heidi Brown from Brooklyn Law School about her early career experiences in legal practice. She shared excellent advice on how to manage uncivil professional circumstances. We also discussed how she overcame a tough working environment as a young associate in a historically male-dominated practice area. I saved this conversation for last because I hope you can benefit from her advice the next time you encounter a difficult personality in your professional life. We hope you're enjoying this episode. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. The Velvet Hammer podcast is a down and dirty look at what really makes trial lawyers tick. Nationally recognized and award-winning plaintiff attorney, Karen Kohler is an aggressive, charismatic, and dominating litigator wrapped up in a sweet little mommy-grandma package. Her colorful stories teach lessons drawing upon 35 years of experience, including the sensational four-month Ride the Duck trial in Seattle. Subscribe for free on your favorite podcasting app. Welcome back, listeners. We're picking up right where we left off. We now return to our episode already in progress. So you were a practicing lawyer before you became a law professor. What kind of law did you practice? I practiced construction litigation, and I did not go to law school intending to be a construction litigator, but it was a great job that I got as a summer associate, and I practiced full-time for 15 years. Okay, and did you just do construction law for 15 years, construction litigation, it sounds like, for 15 years? I did. I worked for three different law firms, and even though we were uh, construction litigators, we also did a lot of transactional work. So I, in addition to doing litigation work like depositions and going to court and doing trials, lots of document review, lots and lots of brief drafting. We also drafted many different types of contracts, architect contracts, engineering contracts, and contracts between project owners and construction contractors. So were there a lot of women involved in construction litigation when you were doing it? That is a great question. And no, there were not. (laughs) I always joke that it was usually a bunch of angry men fighting about money because our construction projects involved millions of dollars at stake. And usually the lawsuits revolved around projects being late. So people were upset. And uh, it was usually nine to 10 men in the room at a deposition and then me and the court reporter. (laughs) Yeah, so so that's interesting. I think that would also probably mean, too, that opposing counsel maybe tended to be male. Yes. My local counsel on some of my cases was female. Our cases were spread all over the country, so we usually had to engage local counsel. And I did have some female construction counsel who were who were local counsel, but most of the lawyers sitting across the table from me at very aggressive, combative depositions were all men. Do you think that the way that they interacted with you may or may not have been different because you're a woman? I think it was pointed at me in a certain way because I was a woman and I was very young. I went to law school straight out of college. I was 21 when I went to law school. I graduated when I was 24. And while I loved the substantive work I did at the construction litigation firm, I loved to research and write. And I was definitely in my happy place when I could be writing briefs. But when I went out to do these depositions, I'd be dressed up in my suit and I'd have my boxes of exhibits and my outlines of questions. But the men that I went up against in these depositions, they could tell that I was afraid. And I have a very robust blushing response. So when I get nervous or scared or 
or just feel anxious, I turn red. And these guys knew it. They could see it in my face. I couldn't hide it. So I do think that, you know, they, they felt that was an advantage for them and they could push me in a way that I would doubt myself, even though I was incredibly substantively prepared for every litigation activity that I stepped into. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I, I actually think that I've I've run into that too, because I'm a young lawyer woman of color and I have long suspected or thought that sometimes when I get that, that it's happening on purpose, that it's almost like a, a, a litigation tactic. Do you think that I'm off base in thinking that or that maybe that's a possibility? I definitely think that's a possibility. I mean, there's a lot of great, well-intentioned lawyers out there, but there are some that will try to figure out what they think is a weakness and, and whether it really is a weakness or not. I mean, now I wish I could so go back and redo every one of those depositions, knowing what I know about myself and my strengths and my assets, but also honoring the fact that I was more prepared than they were. But because they were male, they were older, they had more experience, and they had very aggressive personalities, which I just don't have, I mistakenly thought I wasn't cut out for those situations, and they were, so I let it, I let them intimidate me, and they knew they could do it. And, you know, it's it's not wonderful that they used that to their advantage. And again, I wish I had stood up for myself more, and now I know how to do that. But I definitely think there are attorneys who are sort of ingrained, it's ingrained in their mindset that they're going to sense any weakness they perceive you have, whether it's true or not, and they're they're going to go for it. I just, I identify with that so much because I have had my own struggles with that. I have had my own struggles with trying to figure out how to not be intimidated by someone that maybe I am intimidated by how aggressive they are, right? And, and I'm a prosecutor. And so it happens, honestly, it happens kind of a lot. So what advice do you have for you know, maybe someone like me or maybe you, you know, when you were doing that work or anyone else who may or may not be having issues with opposing counsel. I do. I've been studying this really for the last 10 years because, as I mentioned, I practiced for 15 years and then I transitioned to law teaching and I saw that my my brightest legal writers, I teach legal writing, so I would see these amazing thinkers and problem solvers and and really thoughtful careful individuals when it comes to analyzing tough legal problems, they were also afraid of intimidating situations. And it wasn't because they couldn't do it. It was personality types. So I have a lot of advice because I, in the three firms where I worked, I always worked for a partner who was incredibly aggressive as well. So it wasn't, in my experience, again, I had great mentors and I learned a lot, but I did work for three different very strong personalities across three different firms. So on top of working in that day-to-day environment, I had the opposing counsel who are also incredibly aggressive. And so it just seemed like I was constantly on edge. So my advice now is we, we need to have self-awareness. We need to understand how we tick, how we work. And, and that's different for me from the way it is for you, but we both have a lot to contribute to the profession. So my first piece of advice is let's really get to know ourselves and the value that we all bring to the profession. You know, I'm an introvert. I've written about being an introvert. I used to think that was a weakness. It is absolutely not a weakness. It makes me a careful, quiet thinker. I'm an active listener. I'm a good writer. But all of those things I thought were less important than being aggressive or assertive or 
frankly, obnoxious in a deposition. Now I know more about myself, and my advice to others is to really get to know yourself, how you best thrive, and then value that. And then you can walk into a situation knowing that you don't have to mirror the behavior of other people. You are you, and what you bring to your lawyering persona is incredibly important and powerful because you, the more we get to know ourselves, the more impactful and powerful we can be as our authentic selves. So that's the first piece of advice. I also have other advice on how to step into scenarios more mentally and physically prepared, not just substantively prepared. We're always going to be substantively prepared. But for me, it was knowing how to mentally step into that zone and also physically. Yeah. So let's talk more about that because I think that that's a really important piece here because I agree with you. I think most people are substantively very prepared for hearings, depositions, trials, whatever it might be. But then there's this whole extra dimension that's kind of percolating under the surface, depending on what kind of opposing counsel you have. Or And and we can talk more about this. As you pointed out, you might have a partner that you're working for who is is very intimidating and might have a more aggressive personality. So yeah, let's talk more about that mental and, and kind of physical place of preparation that you can get to. Yes. Each performance we do as lawyers, I like to look at it as those three dimensions. And as good law students, as good lawyers, as good law professors, we're always substantively prepared. We should be. But for me, it was understanding that I could actually stop substantively preparing and then spend a little time on my mental preparation and and really my physical preparation. And that would make me much stronger, more authentic, and able to handle some of these more challenging dynamics if I did that extra type of preparation. So mentally, it was really important for me, at least, to go back to those situations in my mind and think, what was I telling myself? We all have an automatic mental soundtrack when we're starting to feel a little bit nervous or about to do something that we are incredibly prepared for, but we just might feel a little anxious. I had a very negative soundtrack. I always heard sort of the voices of those aggressive guys, or I heard well-meaning mentors in the past who maybe said things that I either misinterpreted or I interpreted properly, but that weren't so accurate about my abilities. So I would say things to myself, bad things like, you know, who are you to have an opinion about these complicated legal issues? You know, you're just a 24-year-old, or you're just a 28-year-old, or you know, you're going to turn red and they're going to know that you're nervous. Why can't you just be like everybody else? I would say these terrible things to myself, even though I had graduated from law school. I had, I studied all the time as a lawyer. I was, I would spend hours and hours reading the cases, the statutes. Why was I telling myself all this negative stuff? I was prepared. And even though I was young and female and on the quiet side, I had power. So for me, the mental preparation now, and, and even Now that I've been out of the law practice and I've been teaching for literally 12 years, I still get nervous about situations. And it's that automatic mental soundtrack that just, you know, plays on a loop unnecessarily. It's up to us to say, no, stop. I sort of like the firefighter mantra of stop, drop, and roll. I hear it. I start to doubt. And then I think, no, stop. I'm not literally going to drop and roll on the ground, although that might feel good. (laughs) But I say, (laughs) no, I'm going to launch my accurate soundtrack. I've done the work. I'm prepared for this. I know what I'm talking about. I deserve to be here. I deserve to have a voice. Even if my voice is quieter than other people, it still has power and I'm going to step into that moment. So mentally, that's what I do now. I, I, I know that sometimes the negative soundtrack will, will creep in again. It's just normal. 
but I'm able to stop and then launch my new soundtrack that's accurate, an accurate assessment of my abilities and my preparation. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think that that idea of quieting down that kind of mental negative soundtrack is is really important. But the other thing that struck me as you were saying that is that I think that when you are substantively very well prepared, I mean, at least for me, I think it would make it much easier to quiet down those voices that are in your head saying that you're not enough, you're not good enough, you can't actually do this. And so I think it's nice that it, it seems to me like those two things dovetail. Like if you're really, really well prepared, it's going to be easier for you to step into this better place mentally to not be so intimidated and not be so freaked out by, you know, when you see this like level of aggression coming at you and you're just like, what, what's happening here? What's going on? It's really important to couple the, the substantive prep with the mental prep, and then I'll get to the physical in a minute. But you, you hit the nail on the head. We, there's no substitute for preparation. We have to be prepared. There's no winging it in, the, in these situations. But I used to always hear advice from, again, well-meaning mentors, just prepare, you'll be fine. You know, j- just do it, sort of that amazing Nike slogan. Just do it, you know, greatest athletic slogan of all time. But for me, just doing it, just preparing and then, trying to barrel into those depositions. That wasn't enough for me. It might be enough for other people, but I needed to add that layer of mental preparation. And now if I could go back and do those depositions, I would trust my preparation. Like athletes, you know, they trust the preparation they did to get into that moment, but they add that mental acknowledgement that you've done the preparation. For me, it wasn't just enough to say, oh, I'm, I'm substantively prepared. I had to say, okay, and... I deserve to be here, layer on those affirmations of all the hard work that I did to get to that point. Without that, just being substantively prepared wasn't enough for me because my nerves would get the best of me. And then physically, if it's okay for me to talk about that a little bit too, when I started working on all these issues for myself, I did sort of a physical inventory. I, I would sit there and either anticipate a scary, intimidating situation, or I would actually be stepping into one. And I would start to survey, okay, what's happening to my physical body? And we all have automatic biological reactions to fear, stress, or anxiety. It could be different for all of us. For me, my body instinctively or automatically tries to get small. And I never noticed this about myself, but my shoulders cave in. I cross my arms and legs. It's like my body is trying to curl up in a little ball and roll out the door to escape. But what I realized as I started really seriously noticing this from head to toe is that when I scrunch up into a ball or like a pretzel like that, it blocks my blood flow, my energy flow and my oxygen flow. So I have a reaction where my, I can't breathe. My heart starts to beat really fast. And again, my face flushes and gets really hot. I sweat. I don't tend to shake. I know a lot of people have a shaking response. For me, I just get hot. I can't breathe. My heart races. And all this sounds terrible, right? So in the moment, though, now I realized that if I, again, stop, realize it's happening again, because even with all this work I've done on myself, this still can happen. And then I realized, okay, I have control over this. I don't have to curl up in a ball. I can sit up straight if I'm in a chair. I can stand up straight, balance both feet on the floor, even if you're sitting. Kind of like an athlete has a balanced stance, can move right or left, depending on which way the threat is coming from. Open up your shoulder, put your shoulders back, open up your arms, and then breathe. And for me, that's just, again, sort of a 
five to 10 second adjustment in how I'm carrying my physical body. And then I layer on the mental soundtrack again. And then I feel like, okay, wait, I am totally prepared for this. The other part that works for me is I, I do a lot of, I take boxing lessons, for instance, or I, I do a lot of physical activity during the week that I remind myself when I'm in that performance moment, hey, you know, I didn't faint in a 60 minute boxing session on Monday. I'm not gonna faint right now. Yes, my body is reacting to the stress, but I know how to stop it. So I'm gonna throw my shoulders back, open up my frame, stand like an athlete, and then I'm gonna do this. Yeah, that's so interesting to me because I I actually do a lot of that same stuff, especially when I'm in court. So, and and even even right now, you know, grounding both of your feet, you know, feeling feeling the ground underneath you. And another thing I do is is breathing. So paying attention to my breaths, are they deep? You know, am I, am I, am I actually breathing <laughs> and taking in oxygen? Do you think that that's effective at all? I mean, it that's works for me, huge. but <laughs> that's absolutely huge because our oxygen helps our brain function. So if, if we're aware, again, all this comes down to awareness. If we're sitting across the deposition table or a courtroom from a really intimidating opposing counsel and we start to feel, it's all about being aware. What are we feeling? Are we feeling mentally are we scared? Are we intimidated? Do we start to doubt our abilities? Okay, we can stop that. We know we go back and we rely on the preparation. But then the physical, everybody has a physical, visceral reaction to this. So for you, you're aware, you know, okay, I need to take a deep breath right now. I, I need oxygen. And what does oxygen do? It helps our brains work. And I'm going to be able to remember all my zinger questions that I'm going to ask, <laughs> or I'm going to be able to fire off that objection a little faster. If we just take, the, instead of rushing in, we actually slow down for literally just a few seconds and then we can recalibrate and our brain will work, our body will work, our mind will work, our emotions, our best emotions will work that will help us produce the best result in that circumstance. And we stand up for ourselves. Even just physically standing in a stronger stance without saying a word, can be incredibly powerful to shut down somebody who's trying to be less civil than we would like them to be. <laughs> yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And frankly, speaking as someone who is 5'2", I, <laughs> that, I mean, honestly, I think that's important to not shrink, to be present, to be where you are, and to have that physical presence. It absolutely is. I'm 5'4", so I, I get where you're coming from. For me now to sit in a meeting where I feel like there's some antagonism happening, I sit up straighter, I put my shoulders back, and I feel strong. And we don't have to be physically enormous to, to convey that strength and that power. It's really subtle, but it really works. Yeah, absolutely. So I think switching gears a little bit, to talk about civility or or lack thereof almost a little bit more normatively. We've already talked about how it appears in the legal profession and how it, you know, how civility becomes an issue in different ways, right? So there's, you know, there's both working for someone, a partner, for example, who might be a little bit less than civil. There's also dealing with opposing counsel who might be less than civil. So particularly with respect to when you're in a working relationship with like a partner or somebody who is senior to you, you can feel like you don't have any options for handling lack of civility because you could get fired. So what is your advice for somebody in that position? So that's a good 
place also to reflect a little bit and, and pay attention and, and become more aware. Because we're in the legal profession, we're always going to work with strong personalities. And frankly, our jobs are very difficult. So there are going to be days that people are understandably stressed and maybe it's not their best day and they're just, you know, obnoxious. But that's different from someone who is creating, I don't need, mean to use the word toxic, but is creating a toxic work environment in which we are on pins and needles every day when we walk into the office. That's just an unhealthy environment. And quite honestly, I, I worked in those environments and it took a tremendous toll on me and I was not producing my best work. So what I advise now is for us to, to again, be a good observer listen, try to enhance our awareness of other people's emotions and just try to discern, okay, is this person just having a bad day, which we're all entitled to a bad day? Or is this something more complex and unhealthy and unfair? And there's this great book when I was researching this, I came across this book by Lynn Curry and it's about, she, her book is called Beating the Workplace Bully. Now I don't even really, I, I don't wanna look at it as us, we have to beat these people. I, I wanna figure out a way for us to diffuse this type of intimidation or, or bullying if it gets to that degree in the legal profession because we do work in an intense profession but we're all working hard and we don't need this added layer of incivility or intimidation or bullying. But in my experience, people aren't holding these individuals accountable because they're in positions of power or positions of authority in our law firms. Like the guys that I worked for, they ran the law firm. So yes, they had power over me. And I didn't know how to articulate how I perceived what they were doing as unfair or wrong or frankly, incredibly unhealthy and, and toxic. So I only thought there were two options, stay and deal, stay and put up with it or leave. And I don't want the future generation of lawyers to feel like it's an all or nothing scenario. So what I recommend is that, again, we have some awareness. We, we really try and figure out, is this person just having a bad day or is this now a pattern? And Lynn Curry defines bullying. I'm going to read her definition, but she defines bullying as psychological violence and aggressive manipulation in the form of repeated humiliation or intimidation. So one, a one-time situation, maybe that's really unpleasant for us, but, but what we wanna look at is, is this a repeated situation? Lynn Curry also says, if we remain silent, we're basically colluding. It's collusion with the bullies. I used to think if I just kept my head down and I worked, my, my work would outshine whatever else they were thinking about me and everything would work out. That's, that does not work, I will tell you. <laughs> just putting our heads down and taking it, not an option. I like that Curry says being silent toward bullies is colluding with them. We're allowing them to do that. But we, because, to your point, we, are, we might be worried about losing our jobs, we, we need to just be smart about it. And what I learned from reading her book is that if we can, can articulate a sentence or maybe have three sentences for different situations where we can say out loud, it might take us a minute, like we were talking about earlier, to recalibrate our physical bodies and remind ourselves that, no, this is unacceptable and I don't have to listen to this or be called that name or be screamed out over a, a staple. I was literally screamed at once over a staple. We can say, respectfully, that type of language or that type of tone is not going to help me produce my best work for you today. Or something just succinct like that, but that gets to the behavior and 
states out loud that it's not acceptable, but why is it not acceptable? It's not just, okay, yes, they're being totally disrespectful towards us, but what gets through to them is that we're actually not going to produce our best work under those circumstances. So I've been experimenting with that myself and also trying to go back and reflect on those past experiences where I was incredibly scared to even say anything about the very real bullying that I encountered and experienced over the years. But I wish I had been able to just take a moment, reflect, is this person just having a bad day? Okay, no, this is part of this pattern. And then recalibrating my physical self, feeling strong and, and really calling out the language or the intimidating tone or the yelling or, or the behavior that just was not conducive to a healthy working environment on that day. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the, those are really good tips and, and information for somebody who, you know, might feel like they can just say what you, what you said, just very succinctly, just get to the point that that kind of behavior is not going to help me produce my best work. But I'm remembering how I felt when I worked at a firm. It was my first year of practice. There is literally no way I would have ever said that to a partner. And actually, I mean, even now, I'm, I'm not sure that I would ever say anything like that to someone who's my, my supervisor. So for those of us who, who really are scared and, and understanding, too, that I, I think that's true, that, that silence in a way is, is almost, you know, colluding with that kind of bullying behavior that happens. But for those of us who really legit would not say anything, what are some tips for, for us to just sit with the situation, understand that it's happening, and just not let it affect us too much? I think all the internal reflection that we talked about earlier, realizing that if it truly is a, a bully situation or a complete lack of civility situation, it has nothing to do with us. It might feel personal because of the way that we hear the language. And, and for me, I've just had so many instances of that that I, I think I sort of flinch every time I hear people yelling about things. So I, I think we need to remind ourselves, even though this feels bad, this isn't about us. This is 100% about that person. And if we can try and frame it in our minds that way, and even, this might sound cheesy, but even having some sort of empathy for that person. Like I know some of the, the guys I worked for were going through really bad divorces or they, they did have a lot of pressure on them. Not that I'm trying to excuse their behavior, but if I could frame it as this has nothing to do with me, this does not mean I'm incompetent at my job. I know I'm not incompetent at my job. I know I'm a good writer. I know this and that about myself. Reframing our mental perception of the situation and then also physically, because we do absorb a lot of that physically. And just to be able to arm ourselves against having that affect our physical health is so important. And being able to, if it's happening again, go take a walk, clear your head, come back in, sit down, hunker down, and do your work. I also think maybe if we don't feel comfortable stepping up when it's happening to us, it might be easier to step up and protect other people, maybe not directly to that partner, but but maybe intervening on other people's behalf or calling out behavior when it happens to other people. We tend to be more protective of other people than we are ourselves sometimes, and that might be a way for us to practice doing that. One other tip that, that just came to mind, as a junior associate, you're right. I mean, I would have been terrified to say anything to these guys, and I didn't. I tried to do some of this, now that I'm thinking back to it, through my writing. So a lot of our opposing counsel 
may not have necessarily been aggressive face-to-face or on the phone, but they were so cutting in their writing. So they would write these letters. This was back when we used to write a lot of opinion, not opinion letters, but uh, letters back and forth from opposing counsel documenting things. And I just remember being on one case and every single day some horribly nasty letter would be landing on my desk that I would have to respond to. And when I was younger, I thought, oh, I have to mirror that language. I have to be just as strident back at them. But then as I got a little more senior at the different law firms, I realized, well, what if I tried to, again, diffuse the situation and say, not really calling them out on their tone, but trying to soften the tone. Not that I was softening my argument, but just kind of saying, you know, there's no need for us to take, I remember writing ad hominem attacks. (laughs) I always had to look up how to spell hominem, but I would write, you know, there's no need for ad hominem attacks in your briefs or in your letters to us. Let's come together and have a reasonable deposition schedule, or let's negotiate a reasonable timeline for document production. And I would put those letters on the desks of my the partners for whom I worked, and sometimes they would they would sign them. That that I mean, I was usually writing things so they could sign. So I think maybe I was subtly trying to get the point across that you know why don't we all stop being so awful to each other? And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. So it may be that we can take the high road in our writing and in the behavior we exhibit in the law firm, and maybe that will rub off on on other people. I think it takes a little longer to do it that way. But I totally agree with you. It's it's really tough as a junior attorney to call out this type of behavior. So that's, that's interesting to me that you mentioned the high road, because I struggle with this expectation of me that that I I always have to take the high road no matter what. You know, even if opposing counsel really is being not civil and kind of just no matter what is happening, no matter what the interaction is on a case that that I always have to take the high road. And and honestly, sometimes that feels almost like an unfair burden because that's one-sided, right? That's saying I have to be the person who stays calm. I have to be the person who, you know, moderates my response and I'm in control all the time. Do you think that that's what civility requires? I think it's a balance. I I think kind of to your point, I always got frustrated as a legal writer that I was always following the rules on deadlines and word count limits or page limits or proper citation. And then I'd get these briefs back from opposing counsel that were just terrible and didn't follow any of the rules but judges sometimes would not penalize the, the lawyers on the other side. And I thought, why am I always the one following the rules and taking the high road and not attacking back with snarky language? So I, I think it's a balancing act. I think we should, when it's appropriate and we feel safe to do so, we should stand up for ourselves and call out inappropriate or uncivil behavior. But we can do that in a civil, respectful, appropriate way. And I think when we are upset and angry, we might mirror that behavior more than we ideally would want to. So I think there's a way to take the high road by not sinking to that level of language and tone and and rudeness and intimidation. But also, I think part of taking the high road is speaking truth about how their behavior is inappropriate. So I, I I didn't say that very articulately, but I think you know what I mean. It's it's we don't need to turn the other cheek and just ignore 
and suck it up and deal with it. We can call attention to it, but in a way that doesn't demean ourselves. We don't have to mirror. I like the phrase mirror that behavior. I always thought I, I was a bad advocate for my client if I wasn't exactly as tough as the other guys. I was tough, but in a different way. So I think it's just about staying true to who we are, but learning and training ourselves how to call out behavior that isn't acceptable in our profession or shouldn't be acceptable. Do you think that, you know, as long as lack of civility and intimidation and and tactics like that remain litigation tactics and remain things that that people feel that they can do that they think are going to give them an advantage in in whatever case it is that that they're doing. Do you think that as long as that's the case, lack of civility is just going to be an inherent part of litigation and, and just the legal profession? Or do you think that it can change? I do think it can change. I think it needs to start in law school, honestly. And I'm saying that as a law professor. I think we have a habit of teaching law in a way that makes students feel like there's one way of being as, as a law student. Like, I think some students feel like there's one definition of a quote, and I'm putting in air quotes, successful law student. And that means being gregarious in the classroom and, and dominating conversations. But I think in law school, we can teach that there are many, many different ways of being a great legal thinker. And sometimes that means being quiet and thinking through things and not arguing, maybe more listening. So I think it starts, to answer your question, I think it starts in law school. And I also think your generation of lawyers is going to insist on it changing. Because for me, at least, I'll just speak for myself, I did put up with a lot because I thought I had to, to stay on partnership tracks, and which I ultimately took myself off of. But I think your generation, this next great generation of lawyers is going to say, okay, I'm at this place, I'm getting great experience, but I know I don't need to stay in this firm forever. So I can see what behavior I think is awesome about being a lawyer and I can see behavior that isn't. And then when I'm ready, I can point out why that behavior isn't (laughs) acceptable and then I can make change. I can either change where I work or I can form a committee at the law office that's going to address civility. I think a lot of bar associations are already doing this. I know there's, I've been on some panels at different conferences about judges being really concerned about lack of civility. A lot of lawyers are as well. A lot of bar associations are. So there is a commitment to change. It just takes work. I think we have to do the work and we have to keep forging ahead to make sure that we don't let it go backwards. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I think that we're up to the task. But well, thank you so much for for joining us, Professor Brown. I I really appreciate it, and I could talk to you all day about this stuff. But uh, I really enjoyed our conversation, and thank you for taking the time to to be with us. Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation too, and it's conversations like this that are going to change the profession because of people like you. So thank you so much for starting the dialogue and having this platform. And thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. As Gandhi wrote in 1913, if we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change. As a man changes his own nature, so does the attitude of the world change towards him. This is the divine mystery supreme. A wonderful thing it is, and the source of our happiness. We need not wait to see what others do.
To close our show, Matthew Kerbis has our Financial Wellness Minute. This is a recurring segment to share advice for better financial health, which ultimately helps with our overall wellness. For all of you out there with fur babies, our first Financial Wellness Minute is about pet insurance. Here's Matthew. Thanks, Sonia. You're now asking yourselves, pet insurance? What? You mean I have to get more insurance? Well, you don't need to get it, but let's quickly break down why you should. Whether you've been a longtime pet owner or decided to pick up a post-pandemic puppy, shelling out a few extra bones can save you in the dog run. <clears throat> Sorry, long run. All joking aside, let's break this down. Even if it hasn't happened to you, we've all heard the stories. 2018 data from a pet insurance company estimated that emergency pet treatment for cats and dogs can cost between $800 and $1,500, depending on where you live. For the Chicagoland area, I could tell you that those average costs are low. Some financial experts recommend earmarking a range of $5,000 to $10,000 just for pet emergency funds. I know what you're thinking. Okay, okay, I get it. I need pet insurance, but how much does it cost? We don't want to recommend one site over another, but you could take a look at Value Penguin to get a general sense of what a monthly premium could run you. It largely depends on the type of animal, your geographic region, and your coverages. Some pet insurance companies offer accident-only coverage, but come on. If you're going to get pet insurance, you might as well get accident and illness coverage. Our limited research showed that, on average, pet insurance for accident and illness coverage could cost you $50 a month, depending on your animal and where you live. If you want a concrete number from an insurer, then you will need to submit your information for a quote. We don't want to recommend one pet insurance plan over another, and none of them are sponsoring this segment. But I suggest looking at Pet Plan's comparison chart on their website to start your search. So what are you waiting for? Get Googling and talk to your insurance agent about pet insurance. This Financial Wellness Minute is brought to you by the ABAYLD Student Loan Debt and Financial Wellness Team. Back to you, Sonia. And that's our show. It's been great having this opportunity to write and co-produce this production. I'm excited for future episodes when we'll cover topics like racism in the legal profession, how the practice of law has changed one year into COVID, and much more. Thank you to my team for their support. Matthew Kerbis for the Financial Wellness Minute and his conducted interview, Jessica Hayashi for her conducted interviews, and last but not least, the audio professionals at Legal Talk Network. Until next time, I'm Sonia Russo, and this is Young Lawyers Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division. Thank you.